Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. On Wednesday, President Obama authorized the deployment of uh, up to 450 more troops to Iraq, where they'll be, I guess, training the, uh, I guess I'd call them the hapless Iraqi military and fighting the not-so-hapless ISIS. And this will bring the U.S. troop levels in Iraq to somewhere around Oh, a little over 3,000 or so. So so what do you think about this, Jay? Uh, I, I think it's maybe uh, a little too little too late. Um, and I guess, you know, something that has always kind of troubled me about uh, sending advisors in to train uh, other armies is it's not who's who's training ISIS because because they seem to be they, they've got it. You know, I mean, I guess that's the it that's helps the to be motivated. They don't, they don't have pro trainers and and. Um, you know, they're just kind of pulled this together from uh, abandoned uh, uh, military pieces that they found here and there, um, and they're making advances. Uh, we had an army that we were training for some time and had given them a lot of, a lot of weapons, a lot of uh, know-how, uh, and they they seem to be struggling. So, um, you know, I, my my thought is, if if you're gonna gonna fix it, you gotta you gotta fix it big, and I, I think that's just politically unfeasible for Obama. Uh, it might be politically unfeasible for anybody, but um, yeah, what's it? I don't know if it's a saying or not, but that idea that you can't really coach desire, and yeah. um, you know, ISIS clearly has a lot of desire, and the uh, Iraqi military not so much. And one of the things that always bugs me about these stories, it happens every single time, is they never mention cost estimates when they're talking about uh, sending additional troops somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I just did a real quick search. It actually took a little bit of searching. And uh, it costs around, give or take, around $600,000 per troop per year, more or less. This was what it cost in Iraq around uh, 2011, which, of course, when we still had a sizable presence there. So it might actually be. And that, and that sizable presence would have been, you probably, you might know the number better than I do, but my sense, it was somewhere in the, the 40,000 range. That sounds right. Before I we to check, pulled out. But, yeah. yeah. And, but so it probably actually is a little bit more per troop when you have fewer troops just because you don't get those economies of scale and so exactly. forth. But, but so for what that means then is if we're committing, uh, if we're committing uh, 450 more troops, that's $270 million a year. Yeah. And to keep 3,500 troops in Iraq, that's around a little over $2 billion a year. I mean, that's, that's not exactly pocket change, and and my question is, you, know, you talk about going going big or going home. Essentially, is that if we're just doing this half measures, do we want to be throwing away hundreds of millions or a few billion dollars here or there on something that really doesn't, it won't necessarily have much of an effect? Right, and and I think that the lesson that that we we ought to have learned um, in U.S. foreign policy and, and troop engagements from from Vietnam all the way through. Um, uh, you know the first Iraq War, uh, where you served with distinction. As uh, I served uh, as, as Norman, as uh, Norman Schwarzkopf's right hand man. Um, uh, but uh, 
you know, and, and, th and through the, the other Middle Eastern adventures and other places we've had is, is the sort of go big or go home. I mean, the, the problems that we've had have been, uh, we do this incrementally and uh, it, it doesn't work and you just keep getting dragged in incrementally more and more and, and you're better off hitting hard and getting out. And I think that was sort of the, the, the lesson that uh, we learned at the beginning of the second Iraq war um, where we tried to have a, a smaller footprint uh, and then it, it devolved into to what was was uh, a civil war. Uh, and then we then came along with the surge and, and the surge seemed to, to fix things up. Um, well, then, uh, at least, you know, I think that's, that's, you know, the, the issue is a, this is, these cost a lot and it's, it's a big, uh, big commitment, but uh, you either have to make that big commitment or, or you're, you're not really going to get anything out of it. Well, I, I guess I'd say yes and no in the sense that you have to make that big commitment, but if the infrastructure isn't there, then you essentially are just propping up this regime for years and years, and then you pull out your troops and everything essentially falls apart, which seems to me is exactly what happened in Iraq. You know, we've spent uh, at this point uh, overall costs in the trillions uh, mm -hmm. of dollars, and, and what do we have for it? We have a situation that arguably is, is just as bad as it was in 2001. And we're, you know, a, a trillion or two dollars lighter in the pocket. And, and of course, that doesn't count all the lives that have been that have been, you know, ended and, and ruined in various ways. Right. So I think. It's well, just I mean, but, but let's but let's compare it and think about also how many troops we currently have and have had in South Korea uh, for going on, you know, 60, 65 years now. Um, the, I mean, those that that's been a tremendous investment. Uh, but it also has kept the peace to a, to a certain extent in the region and has stabilized uh, Southeast Asia. And we kept, you know, again, big numbers of troops in Japan and Germany. Uh, we still have them there as, as just sort of a, uh, I, I don't know, right. you know, smaller force. But, but, but the idea is that, uh, uh, yeah, you don't just win the, win the war and then get out. There needs to be that, that sort of, uh, time and if if you would call it propping up or or whatever, then um, yeah. But it's you still just have to have that; otherwise, things fall apart. Well, I would argue that those examples are. I think those are good examples. But the are, the reason our presence there worked is that there were real governments that weren't completely uh, uh, riven with corruption and uh, you know that there weren't just essentially walking disasters and, and and Iraq's government is is just horrible I mean that that I mean one of the big problems they're having now of course is that integration between the the Sunnis and and the Shiites and Saddam Hussein and, and that government was Sunni dominated though most of Iraq is Shiite and so when the he was overthrown of course the the Shias came in and they hate the Sunnis and so right. you know it, it goes on and on and you didn't really have a situation like that in Korea or Germany or uh, or Japan. No, I, that's 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 a good point. Um, uh, but in, in actually, that sort of, to my mind, kind of makes my argument stronger. Is that yeah? So you, you need even more troops. You need even more of a presence when you have that sort of a situation where you have uh, when you don't have a, a government that that is uh, uh, can can grow. Uh, um, organically that that you really need to have that kind of presence to uh, uh if there's going to be that kind of of uh, uh strife between uh you know religious sex tribal sex whatever whatever it is uh yeah i i come down as being much more uh, rand paulian 
on this, if that's a word, it probably shouldn't be. But anyway, uh, in that, I just don't think that given what it would take for us to go in there and do a, a reasonable job, it would take, I'm, I'm certain, uh, decades and trillions of dollars more. I don't see it worth it in the, in the cost of uh, the monetary cost or the cost of lives. And so I think we should uh, not be doing this. I think it's a bad idea. It's just a huge waste of, of money and resources that could be better put to use elsewhere. Well, I I tend to agree with you. Uh, although I would I would uh, again I, again go go big or go home sounds sort of trite and cliche, but but I think there's something to that. And, I, and my thought is also as, as someone who is a veteran um, and was called up to serve uh, in the uh, the first Iraq War, how much is how much does it suck to be one of those 450 people of, of the entire U.S. military? You know, no sure, kidding. There's, I don't know how much. What's what's our total military strength? I, I would say what somewhere in the two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand. I, I think it's I think it's more than that, but I haven't I haven't looked yeah. in a while. But anyway, four hundred fifty is a very small fraction. So it would be, like, to be one of the like the four hundred fifty guys getting sent to Iraq. Like, oh come on, you know, it's, it's like a reverse lottery or an anti lottery. Exactly. Or yeah, like you know, there's there's somebody else who's getting uh, you know who's who's uh, guiding tourists around Pearl Harbor. Um, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but I, but I digress. Uh, uh, no, I, I think it's I think it's a bad idea. And the the other thing that you know I'm going to go all Henry Kissinger on you is I do think there is such a thing as a demonstration effect uh, that that signals to our allies and to our uh, uh, enemies or uh, opponents, if you want to be more charitable, uh, that we're going to do what we say we're going to do. And I think if you're a, a Saudi Arabia uh, who has recently sustained, uh, you know, attacks, uh, if you're uh, Egypt, if you're some of these other more moderate, and I, I, I don't, I don't mean to, to lump Saudi Arabia into the moderate category. Yes, but, don't do that. But uh, if you are someone who is a, a pro-U.S. Uh, regime, and you see this, they're like, "Don't worry, man, we got your back." Four fifty. Um, you know, again, you start to you start to scratch your head and say, "Man, am, am I uh, signed up on the right side here?" I, I just I just look back at what's now about a century of our misadventures in the Middle East and just think we have just a horrible horrible track record. And, and to me, the the way forward is is by minimizing our contact and minimizing our involvement as much as possible in that region of the world, which uh, is uh, uh, and I think will be for the foreseeable future just a huge disaster that I don't see us making any better. All right. Okay, well, moving on, let's talk a little bit about trade. Uh, This is kind of a little journey into bizarro world, really. Uh, On Friday, the House of Representatives voted to end uh, a worker assistance program uh, for assistance to workers who were displaced by global trade. Oddly right. enough, this was uh, a vote that a lot of Democrats voted – well, voted to end this program. You would think Democrats tend to be for this sort of thing, and in fact, they generally are. But their goal here was to kill President Obama's chances of getting what's called fast-track trade authority, and which is the ability to negotiate uh, trade agreements with Congress and Congress then – or sorry, the ability to negotiate trade powers. agreements, yeah, that Congress can only vote up or down and not amend. And yes. fast-track authority is something that every president in the last 30 years except for President Obama has had. And the Democrats uh, in Congress have been – fairly adamant about President Obama not getting this authority, whereas Republicans, oddly enough, have been very strongly for 
President Obama getting this authority, which well, again, I, I think, bizarre I think world. You, yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say uh, oddly enough because I think the Republican position uh, on this has has been pretty consistent. Um, I mean, for example, Republicans supported NAFTA uh, when Bill when Bill Clinton uh, was was pushing that uh, against Democratic uh, opposition, mostly driven by the unions. Um, so no, I think there's a consistent Republican policy of of always expanding trade, uh, lowering trade barriers, and making uh, uh, trade easier to uh, uh, to facilitate. And also, I, I'd say there's most of the time uh, pretty much a Republican willingness uh, to to uh, afford uh, broad broad powers to the executive in uh, dealing with foreign nations in foreign policy. So I don't I don't know I don't know it's bizarre world. Uh, I guess it's I guess what's bizarre about it is maybe that Obama wants the uh, the fast track. Uh, it's, well, it's no, more, I think I, I would say sort of the unusual thing. I mean, presidents, both Democrat and Republican, have for for many many decades have been strong proponents of trade agreements, and so I just think this is a case of well, where uh, Democratic presidents don't have to worry necessarily as much uh, or about the same things as Democratic members of Congress perhaps have to worry about. But uh, as as you pointed out, uh, that uh, you know the, the labor unions have been a big uh, a big opponent of this, and there was one Democrat who. Would not uh, would not give his name for attribution. Who pointed out that hey, you know, in eighteen months, President Obama is going to be gone, but the labor unions they're still going to be here, and they have been threatening. <laughs> you know, they've been threatening uh, primary challenges to people, basically to the the, the liberal version of Tea Partying, the uh, you know candidates or sorry uh, members of Congress who actually support this, and it worked. It was very effective. Yeah, um, you know, and I. Again, I think that's it's that's bad policy uh, and uh, good I'm, politics. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you would agree with me on the you're sort of a pro trade guy, I would say, aren't you? Well, I mean, I'd, uh, I'd say in the long run, uh, free trade benefits everyone. But in the short run, there are major uh, dislocations; people lose jobs and so forth. And so, I can understand where the labor unions are coming from, and they have to be concerned about that short run type of thing. And, and you know, a lot of people, especially on the right, will paint, uh, uh, will paint, you know, retraining and so forth as, as I think, more of panaceas than they really are. It's mm-hmm. not that easy just to retrain. It's some, there's going to be some, you know, some unemployment and so forth, and some people are not going to be able to rebound from that. And that's a that's a very real and understandable concern. And there's not really a good answer for it, I don't think. Well, I, I mean, I, I'd say the answer is that that when you have a, a freer trade. Uh, what that gives you is is a broader benefit to the, the society at large. Uh, you have more goods, uh, cheaper prices, uh, more competition, uh, all those things, and you have more profits. And this this goes back to you know this is this is Adam Smith back in 1776 who, well, who sort of came up with this. I mean, and and it's it's worked and it's been sort of the great engine of uh, creating wealth in the Western world uh, uh, since that time. And, and yeah, I, I think, again, I understand there's, there are always, there are always losses. There are always upsets because mar- markets by their nature are dynamic. Um, 
Well, you know, I, I want to uh, focus on a point that you made there. I think it's a good point is that in the end, there, there are going to be more profits. But I think an important point that Elizabeth Warren and some of the Democrats are making, well, they're saying, well, take a look at where those profits are going. Who's who's reaping the benefits? And, you know, we've seen over the last really three or four decades that almost all those benefits are going to a very small segment at the very top of the scale, the, the one percent oh, or one tenth of one percent. I, dis- I disagree with you there. I, I think you can say, yeah, there is. It's maybe disproportionate that there's uh, the the rich do tend to get richer, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the poor get poorer. And I think that's that's a, a big. Uh, I mean, that's maybe just we have to agree or disagree. Well, well but, I think the data the data shows that uh, median incomes have uh, essentially stagnated for uh, the the middle class and lower classes over the last 30 40 years. I mean that's that seems pretty straightforward. I don't think the question of is this going on is you know this isn't a, a really a debatable issue. The data is pretty clear on this. The question more is why is this happening? But things have been getting I I'd say the better benchmark is standard of living. Has that improved or or declined in the last 30 40 years? And so what do you mean by that? I mean, by uh, we have we have now have. Uh, I'm talking to you on a smartphone. Um, uh, this is technology that uh, would have been, you know, in the 1970s, sort of science fiction. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I've, there there are um, uh, healthcare. I mean, my uh, my daughter has a, a chronic healthcare issue. She's a type one diabetic. Um, it's incredible the the types of things, the treatments that are available, uh, the technology at the fairly reasonable price when you consider what's well, what the- goes into it. Uh, just the, the idea that um, I'm shopping for a, a used car now and I'm looking at all these cars that have like incredible navigation, Bluetooth type thing, and I'm paying uh, really about in real dollars what I paid for uh, you know something that was a stick shift um, uh, and and I was really impressed to have a, a CD player okay. in it, you know, 20 years ago. So that's what I'm saying is, yeah, it's great for you and me. It's great for it's great well, for but, white males who are highly educated with good jobs. But take a look at the number of hours per week that people are working. And I mean, real people, people who don't have college degrees like we do or advanced education. Take a look at consumer debt. I mean, you take a look at all of these things and you see, sure, people, maybe they have they have an iPhone six, but they're working a lot harder. They're not making any more money. And it's much more of a struggle to make ends meet. We don't have a situation where like we did 40, 50 years ago, where one person in the household could work 40 hours a week and make enough to sustain the entire household. That's gone. And so right. I, 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 think that, I think that for most Americans, uh, life is harder than it used to be. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess we'd, we'd, I'd have to disagree with you on, on that harder, not harder, because, but uh, I guess my, my point is, Medium median income is not the the benchmark that I would use to measure uh, whether free trade is 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 benefiting the country or not. I would I would look more at a bigger picture of um, availability of, of of products, innovation, uh, access to. Uh, uh, I mean, again, the the uh, the example, and I. I Milton Friedman originally did it about a pencil, but I've heard it done also with like a Starbucks cup of coffee. Uh, that you can go into a, a Starbucks and, and get a cup of coffee for a buck seventy-five, which is probably a little pricey, but it's a really good cup of coffee. And 
And if you consider everything that went into that, no one person could make that cup of coffee. Uh, you know, so what I'm saying is, is we have much better coffee. Now, again, I, and I know that probably sounds like a let them eat cake sort of thing as I sip on my, my fancy Starbucks latte. Um, this is what I'm thinking. Yes, yeah, exactly. So of course, that's what you're thinking. Um, but, you know, Starbucks is also uh, hiring plenty of people who serve that coffee. And now they're offering them scholarship uh, assistance. And, and, you know, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is a, is a dynamic economy, I think, in the long run, is always going to be better than a stagnant status quo economy, a protectionist status, a protectionist economy. I, I would agree to a certain extent. I, I would absolutely agree in general and principle that a dynamic competitive economy is much better in the long run as long as there is a level playing field and the, the, the deck is not stacked against one group of people in a society. Okay. And, but that goes – and I would say that goes more to the quality of your trade agreements rather than the authority to negotiate them. Okay, I see what you're right? saying there. Sure, fair enough. Sure, yeah. okay, fair enough. So, I mean, to say to say that that fast track in itself is wrong because it's going to expand free trade. I mean, I think that's yeah. There can always be good deals and bad deals, uh, but uh, I think the, I, you know I'm, the idea of no deals uh, right. I think is is problematic. Well, we we clearly disagree on income inequality, but on the issue of trade in general, it seems that we both agree that in the long run, uh, more free trade is uh, a good thing. And in yes. fact, we share that agreement with the vast, vast majority of uh, economists. And that's one of the few things that economists are almost in universal agreement about, the value of free trade. So, And I lo- one last thing, not to just kind of spike the, spike the ball here on that, but um, there's the argument that in terms of, of uh, foreign policy, that typically countries that trade with each other don't go to war with each other. Uh, and the more interconnectedness you have uh, through trade agreements and through mutually profitable uh, arrangements in different countries, that's, that's, a, uh, that's what helps you get a, a peaceful world. Uh, when it's in everyone's interest to have uh, peaceful trading relations, uh, people will step up and protect that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you on that for sure. Okay. So I'm Mike, I'm for peace. I'm all about peace. That's, that's, that's good to know, Jay. Good to know. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of peace, we can I turn to the always peaceful city of Jerusalem? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a, uh, a big case this week, the Supreme Court struck down a law that would have allowed American parents of children born in Jerusalem to get a passport saying that the kid was born in Israel, not uh, Jerusalem. Right. And the court, uh, this is based on a 2002 law that uh, Congress passed and President Bush signed that said uh, the State Department could record the place of birth as Israel in the passports of American kids born in Jerusalem if their parents requested that designation. So why would, why would a parent request that in the first place? Well, I I don't know. You want your kid <laughs> to me? I mean, the whole thing seems a, a, maybe a little silly. Um, but I'm not coming from. I'm I'm not. Uh, You're not a, a Zionist, Jewish. so you know. I'm not, I'm not a scientist, Mike. Uh, or, or a Zionist, or a scientist. Yeah. Yes, either. You're um, neither of these things. Uh, no, I, I can understand. I guess why it might might mean a great deal to some people. Um, I think there's there's also sort of a. a general though common sense thing to it. If, if you were to pull pretty much anyone from the street, or if I were to just call you and say, hey, Mike, where's where's Jerusalem? 
uh, my sense would be you'd say, oh, that's that's in Israel. I would not say you're right. It's you in a disputed not. territory. Yes. You would, it's in the first disputed Palestinian ta- territories. Yes. The occupied territories, territories occupied by the Zionist entity. Um, no, so there's certain a certain common sense to it. Uh, but as the majority of the court pointed out, that it's the president, the president gets to uh, recognize countries and make foreign policy. And that, in fact, was the Obama uh, administration's argument that ever since the Truman presidency, that uh, the, the position of the United States government has been to recognize that no state has sovereignty over Jerusalem. And so what Congress was doing here was essentially trying to usurp uh, presidential authority in the realm of foreign policy. And again, six justices on the Supreme Court agreed with that position. Yeah. Now this is this is a tough one uh, for me, and, and this it's it's kind of funny because it really ties into a lot of what we just talked about a minute ago uh, with trade authority and what the executive does and and what the role of Congress is in, in all that. Um, and again, this is maybe a little bit of the bizarre world of that uh, uh, the the left does not want uh, uh, presidents to have uh, absolute say. Uh, on uh, or, or the ability to negotiate uh, trade uh, agreements and then have an up or down vote, but but they're very much in favor of uh, presidents being able to make designations as the capital cities, uh, even if Congress says otherwise. Um, you know, my my thought is, I mean, the court probably got it right. Uh, the general deference to the executive in, in foreign policy, um, and and as I as I would understand the the uh, statute, the Congressional Act didn't require, um, uh, you know, the president to recognize Jerusalem uh, as the capital of Israel, uh, but rather gave the president that that option or allowed parents to to do that in the State Department to to it, it was it was not mandatory. It was uh, essentially uh, empowering them to, to do that. Now, again, I I'll, I'll give I'll give the listeners the caveat that I have not looked in depth at this and I'm just going from uh, whatever in the papers. So, um, but before we move on uh, this story, I wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, number one, justice Scalia, not a happy camper on this one. In fact, he, uh, uh, announced his descent from the bench, which also always means you're not a happy camper. And it right. was, a it had some typical Scalia descent lines. There was one I had to mention. I don't know if you'd read it, but, uh, he said, uh, in part, it is possible that it will make for a more effective foreign policy, perhaps as effective as that of Bismarck or King George. Typical Scalia <laughs> venting his spleen in you know in an amusing way. And what what I found was even more surprising. We tend to think of Scalia and Thomas going kind of hand in hand on these things, but uh, Justice Thomas actually took issue with uh, Scalia's dissent and uh, said that uh, essentially that uh, this could lead to if Scalia's version of things were uh, were accepted, that would be uh, we'd have a legislative body that was more like parliament in England and Congress in the United States. So it's not that often that you see yeah, Thomas and Scalia kind of going at each other in a sense. So that was, I thought, kind of interesting. Yeah. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm still as much as it, it pains me to say this, I, I think Scalia probably gets it wrong on this one. Uh, we probably, should, you know, and I wonder if the question might be different if the stakes were were higher. Uh, right. For example, if we were talking about does does Congress have the power to uh, uh, declare, uh, you know, on, on for example, amend trade agreements? That's that's sort of something something completely different. If that issue were to go before the court, 
would would the analysis be different than if we're just talking about what city and, and what nationality gets put on a, a passport? Right. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of higher stakes and st- sticking with um, uh, the, the judicial system, there was a pretty high stakes ruling from the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals this week where they uh, upheld some provisions of Texas's abortion law. And the result of this is probably going to be that about half of Texas's remaining abortion clinics are going to close. And uh, what that means is that the second largest state in the country, both in terms of you know population and uh, landmass or area, will have fewer than a dozen abortion clinics. And the requirement uh, that the Texas law, uh, the requirements. No, in, okay, I'll, 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 let you, I'll let you go ahead. Okay, go ahead. the requirements <laughs> of the Texas law uh, were that uh, the uh, abortion clinics needed to have the same building equipment, staffing standards that uh, surgical centers must have, and also that doctors performing abortions had to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of a clinic. And they said, well, this we're doing this for the uh, health and safety, welfare of women seeking abortions. And and uh, though the uh, the medical many medical associations say no, that doesn't really improve patient safety. This is all about restricting access to abortions. And honestly, I think that's exactly what it's about. Go ahead. Sorry, you're you're. I would say you're you're probably right. Um, more than probably right that that's the intent. Um, but that's not to say that uh, when you say closing abortion clinics, that that necessarily limits access to abortion. I, I think what it might do is is make uh, the prospective cost of abortion higher, uh, might make it a little more difficult if it if you can't just be a, a walk in uh, sort of sort of procedure. Uh, but if you look at also uh, things in the news, for example, the Kermit Gosnell case uh, from Philadelphia a couple of years ago, where where they, he was running an abortion clinic, and there were there were horrible, horrible, um, I mean, unspeakable things going on, uh, including you know essentially the the killing of of live uh, babies um, after delivery. I mean, it's 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 really troubling. Um, so Absolutely. yeah, I mean, you can you can you can say that uh, this is you know radically limiting abortion, but it, but I, I don't know that it's. It, it's quite the same as uh, well. If you're in Texas now, you you just can't get an abortion anywhere. I, I think that well, that's the, still the case. But the standard is that uh, a regulation can't impose an undue burden on a large fraction of relevant cases. Is based on previous Supreme Court rulings, and they, the court, the Fifth Circuit, essentially said that well, that that doesn't meet this law doesn't meet that standard. There are some people who are going to be significantly inconvenienced, but it's not a large enough percentage of the potential population that might be seeking an abortion to invalidate this law. Right. And yeah. I'm in the position of where, well, while, while I hate the effect of this law, it's difficult for me to disagree with the logic of the Fifth Circuit because what I hate even more is the court's questioning the motives of the legislature, because that gets into very subjective ground and the idea of an unelected body of people making those decisions for an elected group of representatives, that that strikes me as being a really bad idea. 
And I want to I want to congratulate congratulate you on on that that very mature sort of uh, position. <laughs> I'm not often congratulated on my maturity, so thank right. you. No, I think- it, no, but I think I think that's that's right. And I, I you know it's one of these. I am probably in the same position as you are on say gay marriage on that. Uh, where on the one hand, I I think gay marriage would would be fine. I don't have any particular uh, trouble with it. Uh, my trouble is uh, a court, uh, a couple unelected uh, people, sort of making this, you know, really big social decision, um, uh, right. and, and not having it go through a legislative or a referendum or, or some other popular process. Yes. So no, I, I think we're on the same page there. Now, also, I mean, I think this this case is is not going to go away because I know other circuits have struck down. Uh, similar uh, similar restrictions. I want to say it was the seventh or eighth circuit um, yeah, that I'm had not. struck down a- almost sort of identical uh, restrictions. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm thinking it was Wisconsin, and I think that's probably seventh circuit. Well, but I, I, but I could be wrong. But regardless, it's it's it it will likely you know bubble up to the Supreme Court at some point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it seems we're both in, we're both in agreement here, at least on the idea that uh, making policy through the judicial branch is not uh, not a really good way to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Amen. Yes. So well, <laughs> we're, we're almost out of time, but I did want to mention one brief thing in closing. Uh, it turns out that Marco Rubio has problems managing his money. Have you heard about this? Well, I, I, I had heard that he is a, a super rich one percenter with a um, uh, luxury speedboat uh, from what I read in the New York Times. Well, that that would be uh, that would that would be, I think, uh, a, a little bit off. But yes, he does have uh, he does have a boat. I think calling it a luxury <laughs> speedboat might be stretching things uh, a little bit. But you and know, we should we should post the link to the picture on the uh, on the website of his luxury speedboat. Yeah, so you've seen the picture. I have not seen his luxury speedboat. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it's sort of like it's you know, it is not a luxury. It's 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 a little fishing boat. It's probably you know, I don't know, a fifteen footer sort of. Yeah. Oh, um, you know, though to be fair, I think it cost uh, eighty thousand dollars. Really? Yeah, that's that's the that's the figure that I have. So maybe he got a bad deal. Oh, he overpaid on that. Yeah. Then I don't know, but I think the general point being is the premise of this article is that Marco Rubio has had problems effectively managing his personal finances. Uh, so therefore, the conclusion we're being asked to draw is that he would be a horrible manager of the national finances. And this kind of thing, I don't, I don't particularly like Marco Rubio, mm. but this kind of story drives me nuts. This idea that uh, there's this, some sort of analogy between personal household finances and national finance is just so incredibly ridiculous. And it, it's not like it's even going to hurt Rubio, of course, as a uh, Chris Hedges or Christopher Hayes pointed out, he said, you know, I, I think maybe Rubio has a plant in the New York Times because this was a great story for him for <laughs> oh, fundraising exactly, purposes. Exactly. It, it really shines a light on uh, on the Clintons or Hillary Clinton uh, when you talk about these kind of kind of things and who's making money and who's not. Yeah, I would say public finances are always a little more easy to manage because, well, the money just kind of keeps coming in and you can sort of uh, by compulsion require people to to keep paying you. And, and at the federal level, of course, you can always print more money or yeah, borrow more yeah. money. So that's nice. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's really uh, easier. Um, if anything, it sort of, you know, gives uh, gives a little bit of sense that, uh, listen, if someone has had to 
uh, struggle to meet a budget, uh, they might be a little more sympathetic uh, uh, to how, how they spend uh, the taxpayers' money. Um, I think that argument's pretty bogus too, but, the, but okay. The, the, other, the other piece of uh, related is the New York Times also took uh, Rubio to task for his uh, various law, acts of lawlessness, um, which included, uh, I think, six, was it, was it six or was it four incidents of speeding over the last, like, decade or so, <laughs> 10 speeding, to 15 years. really? Oh, that's horrible. Um, yeah, so this guy is clearly a scofflaw. Uh, not qualified to be president. They even looked into his wife's uh, uh, speeding problems. Uh, she had a couple uh, speeding tickets. Um, so I, I, if that's not a disqualification, I, I don't know what is. Um, but to me, to me, look, if the New York Times is, is looking at, at that, that uh, yeah, you know, gen- generally, I'm I'm very happy with the quality of the New York Times coverage of, of straight news. I tend to just skip their op-ed page as I do most op-ed pages. But here's a case where I just think they, they had nothing and they ran with the ridiculous story that, that never should have, never should have hit the front page in the first place. Yeah. And, and again, and, and I, maybe it's, it's the sense of, uh, and you talk about in your, this in your book, which is available on Amazon. Um, thank you. The, uh, uh, a sense that, you know, there, there is a, you know, balance issue. Like, look, what we've, we've been talking about uh, Hillary's finances uh, and this, uh, you know, multi-million, uh, multi-billion dollar uh, foundation when you talk about the Clinton Global Initiative uh, and and her sort of hanging out with with these folks who are, for all intents and purposes, James Bond villains. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, really uh, bizarre and scary people. Um, you know, geez, we better look at uh, at Rubio's finances too. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, I hadn't his, thought of that. You know, yeah. and I think it's maybe that sort of weird example. Um, and uh, again, I think at the end of the day, it's probably helpful to Rubio uh, to the extent any of his his uh, supporters really care what the New York Times says. But right, you know. All right. Well, we uh, we went a little bit long today, but I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that, Jay? Yeah. Well, you know, you can cut whatever you know. I think I'm going to keep it all in. Anyway, right. we are out of time uh, for today, and that, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, we appreciate your listening. If you have any thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. You can follow us throughout the week on Twitter. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.